0: Shortly after World War II, three men got together and changed the literary world forever. They were a group of writers and free thinkers who rejected conventional society and the taboos of the day. They believed in writing about life without censorship. They created some of the most influential works of their day. Today I have part one of the Beat Movement and the Beatniks on the 169th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I'm so glad you're with me today. Are you keeping warm? Here in Chicagoland, we're in the negative temperatures. And for you, outside the U.S., I'm talking Fahrenheit, like negative 9 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like negative 23 in Celsius, and that is cold. But on this cold day, I have a hot cup of coffee and a good story to tell. Now, quite a few years ago, I was going to write a short story based on the Beatniks. I had these images in my head of a man with a goatee playing bongos and somebody else reading bad poetry in a smoke-filled coffee house, like the type of things you would see in sitcoms of the 1960s. Then I researched this and found out something shocking. The Beat generation was nothing like what the press called the Beatniks. Yeah, I had read On the Road years before, but not any of the other works by the men who call themselves The Beats. I always meant to look more into it, and finally this week I did just that. The thing is, I could have written a whole episode or more on each person individually, Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs, or even the other people like Neil Cassidy or Herbert Hunky. I could have talked forever on their books alone or even The Murder of David Kammerer. The thing is, I can't possibly tell the whole story. There are a couple of good documentaries that I'll have links to in the show notes, and you can find out more in quite a few places. My original thought was to do a story where I show how the beat generation turned into the beatniks, but it got too long. So therefore, it's going to be in two parts. It wasn't my intention to do two parts, but what can I do? So now, how about the story of the men that called themselves the Beats? This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Now, coming to the screen, the pulsating story of today's youth apart and alone, living by their code of rebellion and mutiny. The Beatniks, a moving story with insight and understanding of a craze that is sweeping the nation. Revealing as it holds the answers to the Beatnik questions all America is asking. Rewarding as it portrays a chronicle of emotion and pathos you'll never forget. A theater must. Don't miss. The Beatniks. I have to admit it, until a few years ago I thought I knew what a beatnik was. Then I found out I was wrong. I was confusing the beatniks with the beat generation. The beatniks were folks like Maynard G. Krebs from Doby Gillis, or the people in the films High School Confidential, The Hypnotic Eye, or Bucketful of Blood. I have just written a poem. Let me hear that beat, man. That's the beatest Beat. Confessions of a Movie Addict or The Holy Barbarian Blues. I believed what I saw in TV and movies. Herbal cigarettes being smoked in underground clubs, pseudo-intellectual talk, bad poetry spoken with bongo drums beating, goatees, berets, black turtleneck sweaters, and dark glasses but the Beats were something altogether different. American novelist and poet Jack Kerouac had been called the king of the Beats, a title he disliked. Jack never wore a goatee, wore a beret, black turtleneck sweater, or dark sunglasses, and as far as I know, no bongos were ever played while he read his work. Kerouac, along with Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, was one of the founders of the Beat Generation, but he wasn't a beatnik. The Beat Generation was a literary movement that began in the 1950s and the Beatniks were an invention of the media to poke fun at that movement. Now I'm sure that once the Beats came onto the scene, with their poetry readings and their revolutionary works like On the Road, Howl, and the Naked Lunch, many less talented followed, pseudo-intellectuals who dressed the part and did the drugs trying to act in a way to convince the straights that they were deeply introspective. But in reality, they were nothing more than cartoonish stereotypes. Those are what we refer to as beatniks. The idea of beatniks was also for Madison Avenue. They began selling equipment one needed to be hip, like black turtleneck sweaters, sandals, striped shirts, berets, black pants, and bongo drums. But the beat generation, or the beats as they called themselves, wasn't about all that. And it all began at the end of World War II. The war finished with a big bang, which was the dropping of the atomic bomb. Two of them, actually, and suddenly the world had something new to worry about. When the war ended, two million people poured into Times Square in New York to celebrate. Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs were two of them. While they were drinking to celebrate like the rest, they began to ponder the irony that while the people were celebrating a new nuclear threat had been unleashed on the world. By the early 1950s, kids were being warned of this threat and told to duck in cover by a turtle. At the same time, the United States entered another war, the Korean War. Young men were being drafted to fight on the other side of the world. Add to that, they had Joseph McCarthy's witch hunt for un-Americans. By the mid-1950s, the new medium of television was showing the ideal American family, with shows like Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver. It was the beginning of the age of consumerism. Televisions, big cars, tract homes, and gray flannel suits. Men went to the office and wives stayed at home with the children. The girls wore dresses and had long hair, and crew cuts were the style for the boys. The beat poet Michael McClure said, One talks about the early bohemians of that period, that they might have been mad, but the madness seemed to be in the middle class. He goes on to say that the 50s were full of extreme conformity, conformity to the point of great grief and grievous pain. It's when tranquilizers were invented, he points out. Filmmaker John Waters said, People talk about the 50s. They see happy days. They think it was fun. It was horrible, the 50s. It was a most terrible time. The first memory I had was you had to be like everyone else. It was definitely a time for the white American male. But Jack Kerouac saw something different. When he came to New York as a young man, he discovered the world of jazz music, a world in which it didn't matter what color a person's skin was as long as you could play. It was a world he wanted to be a part of. American author, poet, and professor John Clayton Holmes, who is best known for his 1952 novel, Go, considered the first beat novel, wrote, In modern jazz, they heard something rebel and nameless that spoke to them, and their lives knew gospel for the first time. It was more than music. It became an attitude towards life. Jack Kerouac was born on March 12, 1922, in Lowell, Massachusetts. He was brought up a Catholic And that would give him great guilt for the rest of his life. The way he would live wouldn't gel with his faith or his dad. In 1926, when he was four years old, his brother Gerard died of rheumatic fever. This had a profound effect on his life. It pushed his mother, who he was very close to, deeper into her religion, but it pushed her father away from it. He began drinking, gambling, and smoking. For Jack, he would say that Gerard followed him as a guardian angel. The family was lower middle class that moved around from one rented house or rented apartment to another. He was a shy kid who dreamed of a career in literature. In high school, Jack was a football running back and he received and accepted a scholarship from Columbia University in New York City. In the big city, he spent most of his time in jazz clubs, taking in the music he couldn't get enough of. He took it all in, staying in the clubs till closing time and hanging around the musicians. He also loved the language, like dig it and cool, and people were either hip or square. Everything from the improvised music to the speech would affect him in his later writing. Now eventually, due to an injury, his football career ended and he soon dropped out of the university but stayed in New York. He joined the United States Merchant Marines in 1942 and in 1943 the United States Navy. His time in the Navy only lasted eight days. He was honorably discharged on psychiatric rounds. He was of indifferent character with a diagnosis of schizoid personality. By then he had written his first novel, The Sea is My Brother. The book wouldn't be published until 2011, long after he was dead. In 1944, he was living with his girlfriend and future wife, Eddie Parker, in New York's Upper West Side when he met three people that would change his life and the literary world forever. Allen Ginsberg, Lucien Carr, and William S. Burroughs. The group would often meet at a bar called The West End. They would talk about a new vision for the world, one in which they would break all the modern taboos that would cast off the standard narrative value, reject materialism, and write about explicit portraits of the human condition, one of uncensored self-expression. This would be the start of the Beat Generation. This new movement was threatened to be ended early by a murder, a murder that resulted in Kerouac's first marriage. A man named David Kammerer had been stalking Lucien Carr, they had known each other for years, and Kammerer was in love with Carr. Now, before I get too far into the story, I want to stress that this is Carr's version. Others have disputed it, believing that Kammerer never stalked Carr, and the story was just a fabrication for the benefit of Carr's trial. Anyway, the two were resting near West 115th Street when Kammerer made yet another unwanted sexual advance towards Carr. Now, Carr was not a gay man and rejected his advances, but Kammerer, the bigger man, became insistent and began to assault him physically. In a panic, Carr stabbed Kammerer with his Boy Scout pocket knife, killing the young man. To cover his crime, Carr weighted the body down with rocks and dumped it into the Hudson River. Kerouac helped him get rid of the evidence, like the bloody knife and Kammerer's eyeglasses. It was Burroughs who talked to Carr into turning himself into the police. Kerouac and Burroughs were eventually arrested as material witnesses. Kerouac turned to his father for bail money. At first, his father refused, but eventually his parents agreed to pay the $100 bond as long as he agreed to marry Edie Parker. Carr pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter and was sentenced to a term of 1 to 20 years in prison. He served, too, in a correctional facility in Upper State New York. Kerouac and Burroughs collaborated in a novel about the camera killing, entitled and the hippos were boiled in their tanks this novel wouldn't be published till 2008 now as far as the name the beat generation gertrude stein and a group of artists living in paris after world war ii might have influenced it these artists that included ernest hemingway f scott fitzgerald and t.s Eliot, after witnessing the horrors of the war felt confused about their place in the world They were disoriented, wandering, directionless. They felt a lack of purpose or ambition, many of them losing faith due to the pointless, wide-scale death and destruction they had witnessed during the war. They began to reject the more traditional ideas of proper behavior, morality, and gender roles. It was Gertrude Stein who said they were a lost generation and the name stuck. The legend goes that Kerouac was talking to writer John Clayton Holmes, one of his closest friends. While they were talking, Kerouac, maybe in a reference to the Lost Generation, said, you know, this is really a beat generation. What did he mean by that? Well, it seems that everything I read or hear, someone has their own definition of what beat means. As far as I understand it, it was because after World War II, with the atomic bomb, the extreme racism, the runaway capitalism, and conformism of the 1950s, they felt tired or beaten down. And it could also be upbeat or beatific. And there's the musical association of being on the beat. Why don't we let Jack Kerouac say something about it? It's the beat generation. It's beat. It's the beat to keep. It's the beat of the heart. It's being beat and down in the world and like old-time lowdown. And like in ancient civilizations, the slave boatmen rowing galleys to a beat and servants spinning pottery to a beat. So this group of writers began calling themselves The Beats as they started living a bohemian lifestyle. It was in a rented apartment on West 115th Street that became the hangout for the new group. There were a lot of late night parties that took place discussing art and artists, philosophy, and contemplating the meaning of life. They took on the lofty goal of changing the world. They experimented with sex and drugs. The place they hung around in, Times Square in New York, was an underground world of hipsters and outsiders, with its junkies, petty thieves, and prostitutes. In a way, they thought, these people were more honest about life than the straights they knew on the outside. They met people like Herbert Hunky, a writer and poet. He was from Chicago, but now made 42nd Street his home. He was a streetwise hipster who introduced Ginsburg to heroin. He quickly became a friend of the group and was their contact to the underground world. Then there was Neil Cassidy, who was introduced to the group in 1947. He was a car thief who was a huge influence on Kerouac. Neil was the basis for the character of Dean Moriarty in his book On the Road. The book was based on a series of cross-country road trips the two started taking in 1947. In 1951, Kerouac sat down in front of his typewriter and began to draft a story based on their road trips called On the Road. Rather than using a sheet of paper to keep the spontaneous flow of ideas and stream of consciousness going, he used a 100-foot-long roll of teletype paper. He didn't want to take the time to change paper, and he didn't even use paragraph breaks. He just kept typing, flowing the words out like a jazz musician, not correcting or changing anything. He would just keep moving forward took him only 3 weeks to complete the first draft. It wouldn't get published until 1957, 6 years later. 1 year before On the Road was published, he and Ginsberg moved to San Francisco and fell into the San Francisco poetry scene. Allen Ginsberg was a practicing Buddhist who studied Eastern religion disciplines exclusively and was openly gay. He and Burroughs for a while had a romantic relationship And even though that ended, they were lifelong friends up to 1997. That was the year both men died. But in the 1950s, Burroughs headed off to North Africa while Ginsberg and Kerouac went to the West Coast. Allen Ginsberg was born on June 3, 1926, into a Jewish family in Newark, New Jersey. As a young teenager, he began to write letters to the New York Times about political issues such as World War II and workers' rights. While in high school, Ginsberg began reading Walt Whitman, his father, Louis Ginsberg, was a published poet and a high school teacher. During his freshman year at Columbia, he met fellow undergraduate Lucien Carr, and he introduced Allen to a number of future beat writers, including Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, and John Clayton Holmes. On October 13, 1955, at a poetry reading at a place called the Sixth Gallery in San Francisco, a rundown experimental art gallery... Ginsburg read his new poem, called Howell. Howell is now considered to be one of the great works of American literature. It begins with the famous line, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Howell is a biography of Ginsburg's experiences before 1955 and also a history of the Beat Generation. In it, he describes their experiences in graphic detail, openly discussing drug use and homosexual activity, the things that were not written about or even spoken about in the 1950s. And at the time, it was considered obscene. When a book of Ginsburg's poems were published of the same name in 1956 by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who ran the City Lights bookstore, Ferlinghetti was arrested on obscenity charges. This resulted in a landmark trial that ended with a judge saying that Howell was not obscene. An author should be real in treating his subjects, and be allowed to express his thoughts and ideas in his own words, the judge said. Of course, the irony was, if they left it alone, the work might have come and gone without much notice. But because of the arrest and the trial, it received all the publicity Getty, and Ginsberg could hope for. And it paved the way for other novels to be published, like Lady Chatterley's Lover and The Tropic of Cancer, By trying to stop Ginsburg's book, the government only helped a lot more works that they deemed dangerous to get published. Allen Ginsberg instantly became a famous writer, Kerouac as well, the following year when On the Road was published. And two years later, William S. Burroughs would release his groundbreaking work, Naked Lunch. Burroughs was the old man of the beats, sort of a mentor to the rest. He was born on February 5th, 1914, to a prominent wealthy family in St. Louis, Missouri. At an early age, he developed a lifelong interest in magic and the occult. He was Harvard-educated and openly gay. Or maybe I should say openly a homosexual, because during the gay rights movements, he was quoted as saying, "...I have never been gay a day in my life, and I'm sure as hell not going to be part of any movement." He was living in Paris when he wrote The Naked Lunch, a series of loosely connected vignettes which draws from Burroughs' own experiences, which includes his addiction to drugs. The book was a huge success and now all three of the original beats were famous. And the beat movement began to sweep across America. Coffeehouse poetry readings became very popular and art communities popped up everywhere. More writers joined the beat movement such as Michael McClure, Ken Casey, and Gary Schneider. And as far as I know, no bongos were ever used. The conservative press took an exception to this, and many considered this movement dangerous. They dubbed these people beatniks in an effort to discredit them. And we'll be going into that in part two in two weeks. I'll discuss how the beatniks were portrayed in the media and what became of the Big Three, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that goddess Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. And nobody... Nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack. A little bit before I go. One thing I didn't explore here was the women of the beat generation. I focused on the main three, two of which were homosexuals and, and one that was extremely shy around women. In fact, Kerouac, even though he was married three times, once said the only woman he actually loved was his mother. Maybe in part two I'll talk a little bit more about the women, like Carolyn Cassidy, Joyce Johnson, Diana De Prima, Hetty Jones, and Edie Parker. Or maybe I'll have to have a part three. I don't know. I say that because I don't know exactly what I'm going to do for the next part. I want it to be about how the beat generation caught on, how the press turned on it and made it into the beatniks, and how that eventually became the hippies. Maybe I'll even show the beat's connection to the punks of the 1970s. Who knows? Stories like this remind me that the more society wants people to conform, the more groups of people will find a way to rebel. And that rebelliousness will become a fashion, and that fashion will eventually turn back into conformity. It's always a complete circle. Look at the 60s. Kids started out to express themselves in a unique way, and eventually that unique look became the fashion of the day, so it wasn't unique anymore. Hopefully that's what Part 2 will be about, that and some of the later Beat writers. But now, how about the ending credits? Now look, if you have a moment, I want you to go over and look at our Patreon page. Just look at it. How sad is that? Am I right? You can help make it better. You can be one of the good people by visiting psycon.fm at CSICON and look for the Patreon link at the top and make a donation. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing podcasts there. That's SciCon, C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. And you can also email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. And of course, I'm on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially go over to itunes and leave a review or a few stars those really help and remember all the links to the sources that i used to write today's story can be found at psycon's coffee with jeff page i'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the psycon network to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. I mean it. And a special shout-out to all those that repost us on social media. You will always have a special place in my heart. I'll I'll be back in two weeks with more about the Beat Generation. More coffee coffee with Jeff Jeff. Years go by And life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all And he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have Some coffee with you Coffee Coffee With with Jeff. Jeff